Welcome to Winnipeg. Welcome to Backheel.com's presentation of a Women's World Cup home companion, let's call it, because we are, after all, about six or seven hours north of Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Call it the other side of the prairie from Lake Wobegon here in Canada. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com and the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News, joined at a uh, local watering hole here in downtown Winnipeg by a good friend of mine and somebody who you all know very well, Jeff Kasouf of NBC Sports uh, and Equalizer Soccer, former host of This Week in Women's Soccer uh, on the predecessor to Backheel.com. Long hiatus. Long hiatus. So, so you're saying it might come back someday? Um, I don't want to commit to anything here, but, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a, you know keep the show going. But I, I, I've been on your show, Jeff, many times over the years, and now I get to turn the tables on you and have you as the guest. Uh, we're going to talk about the United States getting ready to take the field Monday night here in Winnipeg against Australia. Watch at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, 6.30 here in the Central Time Zone on Fox Sports 1 and NBC Universo. Jeff, one of the big themes on Sunday as the players and Coach Jill Ellis met the press. Yeah, Hope Solo was one of the big themes. Okay, I might as well say that. We're going to try not to talk about that too much. One of the big themes was the pressure and expectations on this U.S. team that are unlike any other women's national team in the world. And for all the -the off-the-field distractions that they have had, whether it's Hope Solo, whether it's Abby Wambach's turf lawsuit, whether it's Alex Morgan being injured, if there's one ace in the hole that this team has against a lot of the other teams in this tournament, including some of the very good ones, it is, I think, their ability to stand in this spotlight. Doesn't mean they're the best team. Doesn't mean they're going to beat France or Germany. But it's something that I have going for them, that they have going for them, and I'd be willing to bet that at some point in this tournament, whether Monday night or elsewhere, it's going to help them. Well, I mean, I think that's sort of this, it's almost become a cliche, right, that, that they have this American mentality that they, we've come to this point where I think a lot of people are saying they lean on it too much, and then you get to this point where the world's catching up. That's this, you know, theme that we've seen, and the world is caught up not only physically, not only tactically, not only technically, but you look at a team like France, and you talked to France a year ago, which I did, talking to them in a hotel in some terrible part of Hartford, that what's the difference between you and the U.S.? And Gaetan Tine just points to her head. And she did say some things in English after that, but it it was mentality. And that's what it is for a France. That's what it is still for a Brazil. Um, I don't know if you put Japan. You certainly don't put Germany in that group. But this American mentality, which is, you know, what you're referring to is, um, I think it's, their biggest strength and almost their biggest weakness is that it's relied upon so much. Um, but it is something that so many other teams lack. And I think that as we get into this sort of hybrid area where teams are catching up, um, you know, it's just like you're a player who relies on fitness. Eventually you get old and the fitness doesn't kick in anymore versus a person who's technical and can keep that when they're 40 years old. Um, you get to this point where American mentality just isn't quite enough to get the job done. I wrote about that some in the Sunday editions of the Philadelphia Inquirer and my big centerpiece story on why the United States team is not the preeminent superpower in women's soccer anymore. I very much agree with you about Germany, but I want to put the question to you about a team that you didn't mention, which is Sweden, which the U.S. is going to play on Friday night. They have struggled against the Swedes over the last few years, including at the 2011 World Cup, 
where they lost in the group stage. There have been some other draws and losses since then. That's going to be an enormous game on every level. What should people expect? Well, I think the first thing that they should expect is a bruising physical game when these two teams meet. Um, you know, there's so many subplots, as you mentioned, Pia Sinhaga coaching against her old team for her current nation. Um, you know, that game is obviously, I think, going to decide the group. Uh, like I said, I think it's going to be extremely physical. But the this U.S.-Sweden trend of meeting in major tournaments is is something that's, I don't know, it's incredible in, in some sense that it just keeps happening. But um, I just find that this game is a meeting of these two teams that I, I think you could fairly call superpowers in some sense. Um, Sweden sort of maybe a little bit less so, obviously. But um, both of them had, for their own, you know, relative to their own standards, pretty poor springs. Um, the U.S., Obviously, the Algarve Cup final, and then they started kicking it in against, you know, very subpar opponents in these send-off games. But Sweden um, losing to Switzerland, drawing Denmark within, uh, I believe, three days apart um, in the spring. Um, the players only meeting. Pia Sanaga called out her defense in the media after one of those games. Um, some serious struggles in the spring. And, and Pia, the other day, uh, two days ago now, losing track of days, um, told me when I asked her about it, she said it was a bumpy road, but I like it that way. And I, I, she's embracing it. And I think the Americans are embracing as well, we've seen, that their spring was pretty ugly in some regards, or at least certainly the winter was. Um, so these are two teams that are coming into this that relative to their own terms um, had subpar preparation. We shouldn't, of course, overlook the game that comes before that, which is Monday night against... An Australian team that I have a hunch some people are underrating. And the reason why is because of the speed on that team and the youth on that team. I think, even if he didn't didn't intend it, I think it was Jeff Carlisle of ESPN who asked in the Sunday press conference, should we take from the fact that Carly Lloyd is on the podium, that that means that she might wear the captain's armband and Abby Wambach might not start. And the reason why I focus on Abby, and yes, we're going to have to talk about her at some length in this show because she is one of the big talking points, especially in the women's soccer community. If Abby doesn't start, I would think that it might be in the U.S.'s interest to therefore put Press and LaRue up top or LaRue and Morgan or whatever, but to match speed with speed instead of putting up the power against it. Well, I mean, my bigger concern for them is is not necessarily matching forward speed with forward speed as it is the U.S. back line handling the speed that Australia has up top because that's where, uh, I mean, certainly throughout the field, but it's it's Sam Kerr, it's Lisa Devanna. Um, the speed is up top that at least relative to you look at the matchups and um, Becky Sauerbrunn, I don't know that speed is her calling card, but certainly she's so well positioned all the time that I wouldn't necessarily worry about her. Uh, Julie Johnson, very athletic. Uh, I think where you have to look is you have Allie Krieger and Megan Klingenberg, who I think we can very safely assume are, are the starting fullbacks there, um, directed to get forward, like to get forward. I don't know that you can do that against this team, against Australia, with Kerr, with Devanna, and with the speed, you know, the general team speed that they pose, because I think, and especially in a World Cup opening match, I think they're going to be a bit conservative in the back of the U.S., is there any way that Julie Johnston doesn't start? I'd be shocked. Yeah, 
I'd be shocked. I mean, just the way the buildup has gone, the way Jill Ellis has talked. Um, and, you know, not that, that Christy Rampone is at all slow, um, but I think Julie Johnson probably, if we're talking about speed, probably at this stage of her career and Rampone's career, um, I probably would tip Julie for maybe the faster one there. Uh, despite, I mean, obviously Rampone, known to be someone who can close ground, but um, I, I think Julie, you know, is, is the starter there. Is... And, and here's how I, I think I want to approach the Wombat question. And there's, You can ask the same question six different times of her six players and six different members of the media and get a lot of different answers, or you can just have a bunch of people tell you to shut up. <laughs> but I wrote about it a little bit in the Inquirer, not only in, in the piece that I mentioned earlier, but in sort of profiling the various players on the team. Is she ready to say whatever has to happen for this team to win the World Cup and therefore for me to win the World Cup, I'm going to do? Because it might mean that she's going to be on the field less than she wants to. Yeah, yeah, she's been saying it. I mean, I I don't think that – look, she has plenty of detractors. I think many of them unfairly so, to be honest. Um, I I don't think she's just saying the right things. I think when you interact with somebody face-to-face versus, you know, just reading or – watching on tv i mean you and i you know talked there to her today um you know i I think there's a genuine belief from her that and a genuine realization that you know maybe i start you know whatever it may be maybe i start against australia i don't start against sweden maybe i start against nigeria whatever the the combination may be because she's going to start some games um i think she's fully willing to do that the goal for her um you know I think no matter what, you look at this, and she said it, and she said it for so many years. It's not, you know, okay, she's the world's leading goal scorer. The the goal for her is winning a World Cup. It's it's far and above. It always has been. It always will be. Um, The goal is to win a World Cup. So if that means her sitting on the bench um, for whatever amount of time or in whatever capacity – I do genuinely think that she's willing to accept that. I mean, look, if she's on the bench and, and they're struggling to get out of the group or, or they're, they're looking at a second-place finish or they're down in the round of 16, yeah, she's a player who's going to be sitting there like, look, I can make a difference and I want to be on the field. Um, and that's something that, you know, Jill Ellis will have to juggle. But I think that she's genuinely ready for whatever role it may be. We've talked about... Australia, we've talked about Sweden. You mentioned Nigeria, which leads me to ask this, because you've got them as a potential dark horse in this group to get out as a third-place team. Why? Uh, in two words, Asisat Oshuala. Um, Say that again? Asisat Oshuala. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's been a while. I, I can talk. Um, look, she's a stud. I mean, she is very good. She's 20 years old. She plays beyond her years. Uh, watching her in person last year at the U20 World Cup, extremely, extremely impressed. She's done a lot since then. She's at Liverpool now. Um, one player doesn't make a team, um, but I don't look. This is there's a ton of mystery around Nigeria. I'm, I'm willing to admit that my third place prediction of Nigeria uh, is is semi blind to an extent because. Uh, the coaches playing Nigeria are admitting that they don't know much about Nigeria, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm a, a super Falcons expert. But I, I think that you look at what Nigeria did in the past where they have these this talent and they have these teams that 
uh, maybe should be doing more, and they're not. Well, now all of a sudden they look a little bit more fit. They have a little bit more discipline, and now they have this star power. Um, you know, I keep going back to Oshawala, but she's one of those world-beater, game-changer type of talents or, or has the potential to be at this level. So uh, I like them. You know, I'm more high on Nigeria or on Nigeria's potential than I am down on Australia in this scenario. Well, we've gone through the group stage now. We're going to talk in a little bit about some of the other teams that the U.S. might face in the knockout rounds and so on and so forth. But I want to pause for a moment to bring in some interviews that I did earlier uh, at at the U.S. press conference. One of them was with your former partner in crime, Cat Whitehill, who will be in the broadcast booth uh, for Fox Sports uh, as one of the color analysts in the lead broadcast team, along with J.P. Delacamera and Tony DeChico. Uh, so here's Cat and uh, getting her perspective uh, on what the U.S. team is going to be dealing with against Australia. So I've been on Jeff's show before as a guest with the two of you. Now I get to turn the tables and, and be the host. This U.S. program has so much pressure and expectations and hype and the magazine covers and the players are rock stars and all stuff like that in a way that almost no other women's soccer team on the planet is. As a former U.S. player yourself, what's it like to deal with all that? Um, well, I, I, you know, I, you've seen it before. Pressure makes us, and I think that that's how the U.S. kind of looks at it. They, you know, you know that when you come, you, you make the U.S. team, you're going to have a lot of pressure, and that's one thing I loved about it. it was one of my favorite things is knowing that every time you went on the field, you had a target on your back, and the you know teams want to beat you, and I love that. You play better under pressure. Um, you, you know, you learn it when you go to different tournaments, but especially the World Cup and Olympics. That's when the pressure is at its peak, and and that's when you. You expect to play your best, and you love that kind of pressure. I love it. A lot of the players on this team, like Carly and Abby uh, and Hope, have been through this whole thing before. They're seasoned pros at it. Even with all the off-the-field stuff, they, they know how to handle it. They know how to compartmentalize and all stuff like that. But for some of the younger players, like Julie Johnston and Morgan Bryan, who are doing this for the first time, what do you think it's going to be like for them? It's going to be exciting. You know, fortunately, they've had the U-20 World Cup, so they can kind of, you know, go back on that experience. They're lucky to have that. I never had it. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's they need to stay calm. They need to look to the leaders on the team, like a Christy Rampone and, you know, Lauren Holiday. They've both been, you know, helping mentor, you know, both of them and, and other players like Carly and, and Hope and Abby. They need to, to, to pick their brains because they've been through this so many times. And those players know the disappointments and losing, and they know what it takes to, you know, get pretty close to the podium. Christy's the only one that knows how to get on the you know top podium when it comes to the World Cup, but they all know how to get on the top podium when it comes to the Olympics. And, um, you know, what does it take to get to that top podium? Those are the people you need to be asking. You need to ask them, pick their brain, because they know what it takes. I'm sure that plenty of the Australians, both the players and the public, they know plenty about this U.S. team. You only have to ask Sarah Huffman. She'll give them a full scouting report, I'm sure. But, but the listeners out there in the U.S. might not know too much about Australia. What should they know? Well, they need to know that they have a ton of speed up there. I still have nightmares of Lisa Devanna running by me as a teammate and with the freedom and the breakers. Um, in practice, I have nightmares. And then when I played against her in games, uh, she's one of the fastest players I've ever played against. Um, she's speed on the ball and without the ball. But they also have a lot of other players up front, like Sam Kerr and uh, Heyman, who's also a really tall forward, but she's very quick with her turn. You have Kaya Simon. You have Caitlin Ford. I mean, so many. The, the names go on and on, and um, they're just so fast. But what's 
different about this Australia team. You know, four years ago they were really young and people were excited about them. And here we are four years later, and I think that um, they're more sophisticated on the ball. And technically and tactically they're just going to be better, and they're going to be a tough game for the United States. How should the U.S. handle that? Is there maybe an argument to be made to play a press, to play a Johnston, to play some of the younger players who can maybe give it a little more uh, speed-wise and match the speed for speed than with some of the other veterans who are more power-based? Well, I think you go with what you've been doing. You know, when when it comes to the United States, yeah, you got to prepare for your opponent, but you you know you have to be confident in you and whatever um, you know has been working for them that they believe that they are confident going forward. That's who you should play. You know, know what's gonna what Australia is gonna bring you, but you know, the United States plays their strength. It's gonna be tough for anybody to beat them. How exciting is this for you to be in the booth tomorrow night at the World Cup? It's very exciting. I'm actually, I was nervous for Canada and China yesterday when they walked out on the field because I remember my first World Cup. So I'm going to be nervous for all the teams that I'll be watching tomorrow. Um, you know, bring back, re- you know, really good memories, some really bad ones. I don't like to lose, obviously, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm excited for them. You know, I'm nervous for them, but, you know, a different perspective for me now, and I'm excited. Last question. As you've watched the growth of women's soccer in the U.S. over the years, uh, and you and I have had this conversation many times before uh, about the supporter culture and how it has meshed with women's soccer and how now in the last two or three years, thanks to the American Outlaws and other groups, it's finally being accepted in a way that it never has been before. And I've watched that up close and personal for a long, long time, as you know and as Jeff knows. What does it mean to you to finally see some of these barriers get broken down, to see the American Outlaws be traveling to a World Cup officially for the first time, things like that? Oh, I think it's awesome. It's absolutely amazing, and it's well-deserved. You know, I mean, I love seeing, you know, guys with LaRue jerseys on and, you know, proud of it. You know, I think it's great, and that's what, that's how it should be. You know, you should be wearing, you know, men and women jerseys because, you know, we're representing our country, and, we, we you know, like, we want to make everyone proud, and we're proud that, they, you know, they come alongside us. And, um, you know, I've been watching them even with the, you know, big heads and, you know, the, you know, TIFOs that have been going up. I think it's so awesome, and that's, you know, it's finally, the the real soccer culture is is in America and the wonderful thing about being American is you both you have both men and women that are really good at the sports so supporting them both is 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 awesome and I'm just so glad that it's coming about and I can't wait to see what the crowd holds for the United States I also talked with the play-by-play voice uh, for the U.S. games on Fox Sports J.P. Della Camera who was of course somebody very familiar uh, to all of you, and I got his perspective on what it's like you know, to be back in the spotlight in the broadcast booth. Of course, he was the voice of the 1999 World Cup on ESPN and ABC, and he's now, uh, in addition to his work with Fox, uh, the play-by-play voice for the Philadelphia Union. You've caught a lot of women's World Cup games over the years. Obviously, everybody knows you for 99, and for many, many years after that. How does it feel for you now to be back front and center on a stage like this? Um, I always look at it, Jonathan as an honor. I'm humbled by it. I never take these things for granted. I never expect to be named. If I'm named, I am. If I'm not, I'm not. But I always um, treat it with the utmost respect. And I think uh, it's especially uh, rewarding now because it's the first time that Fox is handing, handling a major tournament like this. So to be the lead voice for that first event is huge, and especially with the money and the resources that Fox is putting into this Women's World Cup, I think we're off to a good start, and I think people are impressed so far. And like the teams in this tournament, we're nowhere near where we're going to peak. Hopefully we peak at the final two. Fox has a long, long history of developing American 
soccer broadcasters, giving the platform, yourself included, Mark Rogandino, Max Bredos, Christopher Sullivan, people know the names over the years. Now they have John Strong and Justin Kutcher uh, in the mix. What does that mean to you to see guys like John and Justin who are coming through as a newer generation of Americans who know the game very well? I I think it's huge, and I think one of the statements that was made at at the seminar was that we have five play-by-play voices, and they're all American, and I think that that's important. I think for this country to grow in soccer, we need more American voices, more good American voices. I think we have them. I, I love the European voices. I'm a big fan of Martin Tyler, always have been, and the same with Ian Dark, John Champion. There are so many great ones, but in this country, you know, I prefer to hear an American voice, especially for our U.S. national teams. So I think that Fox going in that direction is great. Uh, Not so much for me, because I'm not starting my career, but for guys like John and Justin and others who who are much younger and who are just getting really started pretty much in this business, I think it's great for them. Everybody who watched in 99 and, and to a lesser degree in 2003, but certainly to some degree, saw how big of a spectacle the Women's World Cup is when it's played in the United States, and it certainly is shaping up to be a pretty big spectacle here in Canada. Um, do you think that there is a difference when it's played in the Americas because of the amount of attention that countries like the U.S. and Canada pay to the women's game? Uh, I think because of the <clears throat> television that's here in, in both of the countries, the exposure, uh, the social media, Canada and the United States have, have so many similarities, and uh, the American outlaws and, and other fans are within distance, certainly, and it's economically more feasible than going to, let's say, Asia or Africa or where other other uh, faraway countries. So I, I think having it in Canada, same as in the U.S., we have the stadiums, we have the infrastructure, we have the mass media, and I think um, Canada's going to be a huge, huge hit, and who knows how far this can go. I mean, if Canada could ever make it to the final you will see momentum like you saw for the U.S. back in 99. That's if they can make it to the final. If they get knocked out earlier, then some of the air will be let out of the balloon, but it's still going to be a great tournament. You alluded to the American Outlaws a minute ago, and I asked Kat this earlier, and I'll ask you the same question. Um, The women's soccer culture in the United States has not always been fully embracing of the more traditional soccer supporter culture. I don't just want to call it the men's culture, but there's a lot of that. And and now they're here, and the American Outlaws are here at Women's World Cup for the first time. Um, and we've seen the last two or three years more supporters clubs at the NWSL teams, more crossover in Portland, for example, mm-hmm. um, between the men's and women's fan bases. That was a barrier that took a long time to come down, but now that it's coming down, what do you make of it? I think it's fantastic. I think the American Outlaws' uh, emergence on the scene has been so huge. The players always talk about it, how they hear that support wherever they are. You know, you see whenever there's a game played in a foreign country, you see the American Outlaws there. That means a lot to the players. And I think when you go to even MLS games, you see the biggest difference in the crowds over the last few years has been because of the traveling supporters groups. So when the Red Bulls play Philadelphia Union or now New York City FC plays the Red Bulls or Philly or there's so many of these teams, the Cascadia region, uh, it's huge because those, those traveling supporters get the best out of the home supporters and vice versa. It's so loud, so noisy, it, it just creates a different atmosphere there. There are two questions that I've been asked many times by readers that I, I want to ask you. One is, from your perspective, what the difference is between a two-man, two-person booth and a three-person booth and managing the traffic 
in there. <clears throat> Years ago, I didn't like a three-person booth. I thought it was too much. But I've, I've done it so much lately that I've grown to be more of a fan of it. I think if you have the right people, it's great. I think we have the right people. I think you always have to have a different perspective. So we have a, a coach and a player who have both been successful. So they offer a different dynamic to it. So now I'm in favor of it. I don't think it always works. I think you need the right three people. I don't recommend it as something for you know the future like all MLS games or all NWSL games or all... Um, World Cup games but I think <clears throat> the right moments um, the right games the right team it works we have the right team and the number one question that I have been asked about you many many times and I think you know what it is because I can already see you smiling is are you ever going to be on Twitter uh, no <laughs> no I didn't know that was coming uh, no the fake JP does a great job so uh, he's funnier than I am I let him go uh, I think he can have a monopoly on it if he wants <laughs> Hey, folks, before we get back to my conversation with Jeff, just a reminder that you can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Kasuf, and, of course, check out his work on EqualizerSoccer.com and in the soccer section at NBCSports.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Goalkeeper. And for the Women's World Cup, I have taken the plunge and joined the cool kids on Snapchat. Yes, really. Uh, my Snapchat handle is jtannenwald, J-T-A-N-N-E-N-W-A-L-D. I'm posting photos and videos from my travels across Canada following the U.S. team at the World Cup. And now, back to my conversation with Jeff Kasuf. So I was talking with JP about the spectacle of this World Cup and how big it's become. And I want to ask you about that, too, because you and I have traveled a lot of the same roads together in women's soccer over the years, and we've seen this sport grow in a lot of different ways. I know 99 was a big deal. I know 2003 was a big deal because I was there in the stands as a fan. I can't remember a Women's World Cup being this big a deal ever, and I think that it is a hard-earned success for the sport, not only in terms of the scale of the spectacle, but as I said on Soccer Morning before I left town, to just be treated finally as soccer, nothing more, nothing less. Certainly going into the World Cup, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously 99 and the pandemonium that followed and, you know, stuff that they didn't even, organizers couldn't even predict. Um, but going into a World Cup, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, maybe some of it being that it's in Canada and it's right across the border in the U.S. and Canada are you know, the day-to-day people that we interact with the most and they're most excited about it being so close and relatively, um, you know, I, I don't know about the Canadians going that deep, but relatively there's there's a possibility for success. Um, you know, what your point about treating soccer as soccer, treating women's soccer as soccer, I mean, definitely resonates with me. I mean, I, as you said, you and I, same roads, talk a lot, um, that's, you know, six years now or so that it's been, I mean, of me covering this sport is, that's been since day one. I mean, that's why I started Equalizer was, you know, treat women's soccer like soccer. Um, it doesn't need to be women's soccer. It doesn't need to be different. It, it is soccer. Um, and I think that that is, as you said, really good to see. I mean, I think it still has a long way to go to that point. There's still some and maybe these are things that will always exist that are there's just differences that are inherent but yeah i think it's it's exciting to see and you know i hope that 
I hope that it continues through this cup and obviously beyond it. But, you know, should something happen where the U.S. goes out earlier than expected or Canada goes out earlier than expected, that those fans are still interested. I think that's a pretty good barometer. I, th- I think that it's not just, oddly enough, as, as counterintuitive as this may sound, in terms of treating women's soccer as just soccer. It's not just the men's soccer community embracing that, but the women's soccer community too. And I'll give you an example. If they go, if the U.S. goes out early, there is going to be criticism, and a lot of it, and it's going to be about the tactics on the field, and individual players are going to get a lot of heat. That they're men or women, it doesn't matter. And I think that that comes with the territory, and as much as anything, I hope that the women's soccer crowd is ready for that. Because they say they want the mainstream attention, and if they do, that's what they're going to get. Well, that's true. I mean, that's going to be, uh, we were talking at one point earlier, too. Yeah, I mean, it's this, uh, this interesting dichotomy of, you know, you want to grow, but do you want everything that comes with growth? And, um, you know, there have been some, I want to call them half-hearted jokes about uh, from some players and coaches that, uh, there's been quite a media circus already, um, and we're not even, you know, we haven't even seen this thing kick off for the U.S. yet. But, um, you know, that's what comes with it. I mean, look, you need you need the media, you need the marketing um, to grow to grow this sport. So there's good and bad that comes with that. I think, um, yeah, I think we saw some of that in the spring already, though, and in the winter, uh, where, you know, this U.S. team took a lot of criticism for its tactics, for some of its personnel decisions. And that's what comes with the men's game. And I think that some, some, you know, just like the men's game perhaps, some embraced it, some didn't love it. Um, you know, some are more critical than others. You know, it's, it's, it takes all kinds kind of scenario. So um, I think that will be very interesting to see. And, and I'm looking forward to, you know, talking tactics, talking technicals, talking breakout players. And, um, you know, I think it will be interesting to see how that shakes out. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot and try to get a couple predictions out of you. I know you made a whole bunch of them uh, on Equalizer. I think just about everybody has one of the semifinals being the U.S. versus France or Germany. Um, but coming down the other side of the bracket, I think, is going to be fascinating. Uh, and I would not underestimate a Brazil-Sweden quarterfinals being a hell of a game. Definitely be a heck of a game. Um, I don't have that quarterfinal. Uh, I guess that shakes out differently than you know, depending on who you picked. But I still don't. I'm still not convinced by Brazil. Um, I think that they've shown points of progress, but they have some young players. They have some old players too. Let's be honest. Um, I'm just not convinced by them, and and I think it's going to take something of being proven wrong to ever be convinced by them, just by their history. Um, my other semifinal is, and I always have to couch this, so give me a second, is Japan-Canada with the caveat that, look, Canada is not a top-four team in the world, not by any stretch of the imagination. However, by these lovely man-made seedings that that have been put forth by FIFA and and the bracket that is for a 24-team tournament where third-place teams go through, Canada has a very easy path to a semifinal relative to the path that should be to get to a semifinal and relative to the other paths to the semifinal. So really you're going to probably see, in my opinion, England or Canada 
if it shakes out this way in a semifinal, neither of them deserving on, you know, just ranking of form or other teams that are far superior, one of them is going to be there. And I think it will probably be Canada. I think they'll go to the third place game and you'll get a Japan-France final. But um, that, that, um, that third place game I think you just gave away uh, could get a little raucous. Yes, I think that, I mean, look, you talk about people not caring about a third-place game, a U.S.-Canada third-place game in Canada, uh, after what we saw in 2012 particularly, after all this stuff that's sort of built up, I think that that would be a dream third-place game for, for organizers and neutrals, certainly not for Canada or the U.S. who would expect to be in the final, but um, that would be very interesting. Um, and I think probably a tired legs bloodbath is how I would describe it. You talked about Canada, and we have to touch on them for a moment, if only because we know we've got a lot of listeners out there, and if we don't, they will scream bloody murder at us. Um, John Herdman said that his players were very loose and relaxed coming into their opening game. I want very much to believe him because I have a lot of respect for him, but I think it was pretty clear that they were looking nervous. Yeah, no, they weren't. They were not loose at all, and I don't know that you can expect them to be. I mean, they can say all they want, like you said, but um, I know that. I mean, they showed on the broadcast that they tried to get their nerves out of their systems with uh, match day minus one doing the national anthem in the stadium to to sort of get the emotions out there. You can't replicate fifty three thousand fans, and you can't replicate the national anthem in front of them. Um, look again. I mean, back to what I said about them not being a top-four team in the world, but probably making a semifinal or possibility to make a semifinal. Uh, they didn't look that good Saturday, but they got three points. And now they get the Dutch and, you know, they get the Dutch and New Zealand, who are both teams that I think could give them some trouble, but are certainly there's the potential there to take nine points and go on their merry way to really a, a – pretty cushy path to a semifinal and that's not to take anything away I mean it's how the cookie crumbles you know the other side you have a final and a quarterfinal probably with France and Germany which is a bit ridiculous to me but um, that's just how it goes I'm biting my tongue on the draw I'm just it's tempting people have seen me rant about it enough I think by this point I don't don't bite my tongue on the draw I think it's ridiculous Um, I, I think that if a French look you have to go through tough teams to win a World Cup. Teams are getting better in the world. The world is catching up. This cliche that I, you know, I get sick of. And it's it's nothing new, certainly on the men's side of the game, for the draw to throw up like Brazil and France in a men's World Cup quarterfinal or something like that. It happens. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, look, my thing is if if France Germany were going to be a quarterfinal, and I know I'm jumping ahead that this will happen, but if that were going to be a quarterfinal, and it happened naturally, so be it. But when we put Teams, I'm not putting we, forget we, because I'm not involved in anything with FIFA. Uh, when FIFA puts teams handpicked into groups for quote unquote sporting reasons, uh, sporting considerations, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> yeah, sporting considerations in light of the past two weeks, particularly, which really draw an eyebrow, to be honest, in retrospect, or, or an extra eyebrow in retrospect. Um, to man make that is, is ridiculous to me. It's not going to change. I hope it changes in 2019. I really do, um, and, and maybe it will. But, you know, that it is what it is at this point. Um, you know, it would have been great to see that as a final. 
maybe for some ridiculous reason of how teams finish that it somehow ends up being a deeper match than a quarterfinal. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we've said our piece on the draw, which happens. I, I will only say this. FIFA and the Canadian Soccer Association, not to mention the tourism board here in Winnipeg and all the establishments like the one we're in at the moment, had better count their blessings that the two U.S. games here are sold out. Because when I first saw that happen, I was not convinced that 30,000 Americans would make the trip. And they have, and they deserve a lot of credit. They do deserve credit. I mean, um, <laughs> I think that maybe they might be a little disappointed when they get here. <laughs> oh, I think they're here already, and I think they're already disappointed. <laughs> I mean, at the risk of having something thrown at me by some local here, um, you know, this is not a very... It ain't, it ain't Vancouver. It's not a glorious, impressive, or, or shiny city by any means. But, um, you know, we're here. I'm looking forward to some games. That, that's exactly right. Our last question. Um, I want you to pick a team that you think that not a lot of the general American soccer public is paying attention to but should. I'm going to steal what I think might be the team that you pick. I'm going to pick the Netherlands. Uh, because I think that Vivian Medema is really good and has a chance to become a star. Uh, what do you think? A team to make a run or just a team in general? A, t- a team that, you know, everybody knows about France, Germany, Sweden, maybe a little bit about England, but what's a team that people haven't been paying attention to that they should? Well, I would argue a casual fan who really doesn't know much, it would be a France, but that's kind of a cop-out. Um, but I, I don't think a casual fan knows as much about France and, and probably is going to learn real quick. Um, I love Group E very much. If the U.S. weren't in this World Cup and I could just pick something to follow, I would follow Group E. I think it's an extremely technical group with four technical teams and four playmakers. Um, you have Marta for Brazil. I was going to say that's the Brazil, Spain, Costa Rica, and, and, and Korea Republic where you have. So you have Marta, uh, Shirley Cruz, Vero Boquete, and, uh, and Jiso Yun, who are really the four string pullers in the middle for their respective teams. Um, out of that group, which I think is going to be very interesting, uh, maybe a Group D, Group A kind of scenario. I mean, Brazil should finish first, obviously, but the other three I think will be tight. Um, Spain, to me, is a team to watch. Uh, they're a team that uh, Vero alone, I think you'll, you'll find that people will see why she's probably a, one of the five best players in the world. Um, and Spain, you know, I spoke with her a couple months ago, or maybe even more recently it was, and we talked about Spain is playing for a lot more than just those 23 players. Spain is playing for any type of respect back home. Women's football is still not a big deal there. It's still not treated very seriously or, or with much respect. Still some sexism there. And they see legitimately getting out of the group, getting to a round of 16 as something that, you know, a USA 99 kind of moment for them of sorts. So I think that's a team to watch, and obviously that's a story that would transcend sport. I'm glad you picked Spain. I was, I was secretly hoping that you would because um, – I watched Vera Boquette in Philadelphia with the Independence when Paul Raleigh brought her over. And she was tremendous, and she's only gotten better since then, even though she's been a little bit out of the spotlight um, in terms of the American perception of late. She signed with Bayern Munich recently, which I think is going to be great for her. Um, two of my picks for games to watch in the entire group stage 
not involving the U.S., involves Spain, which against Costa Rica, which is going to be the first ever World Cup game for both of them, and then against Brazil, which I just think for for anybody who thinks that the women can't play the game well, sit down and watch that game because I think with the star, the star power and the skill on the field, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think we will call it call time there. Um, we both have to go get some rest and get ready to be at the stadium in Winnipeg for a nice long time on Monday. Um, thank you all for listening. Of course, tune in to Soccer Morning. Uh, if you're listening to this before 9 a.m. Eastern uh, on Monday, that's, of course, when you can tune in at worldsoccertalk.com and uh, on YouTube and then, of course, on Sirius XM at 11 a.m. Eastern. If you're listening afterwards, tune in to Fox Sports 1 and NBC Universo at 7.30 Eastern time is kickoff here in Winnipeg between the United States and Australia. Sweden and Nigeria precede them at 4 in the afternoon. I believe that game is on the big Fox network over the air, if I'm not mistaken. Give it a look. should be a pretty good day of soccer here in Winnipeg, which will give us something to do instead of just sitting around uh, here in the bars uh, downtown. So for Jeff Kasuf of NBC Sports and Equalizer Soccer. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald of Philly.com, the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News. We hope to be back with you uh, in various forms throughout the tournament. We might have a few more guests here and there along the way. And thanks for listening.